Wow, thank you. What a great song, Bow the Knee. So we appreciate you guys singing that for us and reminding us of our greatest advocate we have is prayer, right, to the Father so that we can see it from his perspective. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John. So we're finally here at the Gospel of John. I've been looking forward to uh, preaching this to you, walking together with you throughout this inglorious uh, Gospel. And this morning, we have the chance to get started. So in your outline there, in your, in your bulletin, uh, we've just titled basically this message as an introduction to John, an introduction to John. You know, when I was preparing to preach uh, this day, I wanted to kind of do a quick introduction, then get into the first four verses and preach. Uh, but unfortunately, sometimes there's just so much information as you want to introduce a brand new book. So consider this a sermon, which is an introduction to John, where we're setting the table. We're setting the table where we'll be feasting for the next several years. And so I want to do is just give you an overview of John 1 all the way through chapter 21 in a way that would help serve us well for that. So pray with me, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for the the joy of spending time in your word, God, to to be introduced today to the gospel of John. I pray that it would stir our hearts and that we would learn things that we've never seen before, that we would live for you in in a way that would honor Christ and bring us great joy. And so God, help us as we look at this introduction today that we would find it useful, convicting, riveting, and it would bring about change in our life. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, notice there in the very beginning of John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. In Him was life, and this life is the light of men. Well, what I want to focus on today, since we can't really get into verses 1 through 4, is I figured that I might just focus on the first word. What's the first word there in your Bible? In. That's what we're doing today. We're just getting in, all right? We're going to get into the Gospel of John. That's all we're going to be able to do today. How many of you guys have ever read through the Gospel of John? Maybe you haven't read the whole Bible, but you said, you know what, I've read John. All right, good. How many of you guys have ever told someone else to read John? You're witnessing to somebody, you say, hey, you need to read the Gospel of John. All right, how many of you guys have ever handed out a Gospel of John, a little paperback, one Gospel to John, to somebody, and say, hey, you should read this? Awesome. Well, so many of us love John so much. It's probably my favorite Gospel, I think, because of the reasons I'll be giving you kind of throughout this introduction today, makes it uh, really a book that I've been wanting to preach for a long time. In fact, when I was in college, I was visiting a different church, and the pastor was introducing the book of Romans. And as he was introducing the book of Romans, he was saying, if I only had three books that I could preach through my whole pastoral ministry, I would preach to you the book of Genesis. And I would preach to you the gospel of John. And I would preach to you the book of Romans. And when he said that, I thought, that's a pretty good summary of the Bible. I think I want to do that one day. I think if I ever become a preacher, I'm going to preach Genesis, John, and Romans. Well, I've never done Genesis. I've never done Romans. I've never done John. But we get to start John today. So this is like a fulfillment of a lifelong desire I've had is to preach through the gospel of John. And because of our morning that we have here together, you know, we can't cover it all. But I love the quote that Augustine is attributed to having said, which was this, quote, John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a child not to drown. 
really summarizes the depths of this gospel as we look at Jesus, the Son of God, that he was with him in the beginning. And yet it's so shallow, not in a bad way, but it's accessible to where even a child could understand John 3.16 and not drown. And so that's the kind of gospel that we're looking at. In this book, we'll see deep truths, but we'll also see the simplicity and the purity of the gospel. And so what I want to do today is give you an introduction. In some ways, it'll feel like an overview or a flyover. We won't have time to look closely at each of the beautiful trees in this book. We'll let the exposition take care of that as we come to each passage. But today, it's more of like realizing this is a beautiful forest. I want to see it from a bird's eye view, maybe from 30,000 feet. How many of you know that we live in a beautiful country? How many of you have been to maybe many beautiful uh, national parks that you've spent time in? How many of you have seen the country from the air? A lot of us have had opportunity through work or mission trips or travel or family or whatever to just fly. And as I've flown all over this country, I've seen some beautiful sights from the air. Maybe you've seen some of these. I've seen the Golden Gate Bridge from the air. I've seen, uh, you know, the, the Hoover Dam from the air. I've seen the Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountains, the Gulf of Mexico. I've seen Washington, D.C., the National Monument. I've seen New York and the Statue of Liberty all from the air. And there's something beautiful about seeing a 30,000-foot view of our country. While there's individual parks and individual places that are gorgeous, it's also good to just see it from the air. In fact, I think maybe my favorite view from the air was I was returning home from Europe to Atlanta, Georgia, uh, several years ago, and it was happened to be on the 4th of July. And on the 4th of July, as I'm flying down, you know how you kind of take that arc way up over Iceland and Greenland, and then you start coming down. Well, if you're not from the south, you may not know that, but that's how the plane goes. And then it just goes down the east coast. And it was on the 4th of July, and I sit there, and I'm looking out the window, and I see fireworks over New York and the Statue of Liberty. I, I see fireworks in Washington, D.C. I see fireworks over uh, cities in Virginia and North Carolina. It's kind of like all the way down, I'm just watching these fireworks, and I'm like, wow, this country's amazing. It's so beautiful. And that's really my goal for you today, is that you would look at the Gospel of John, maybe in a new way, and you would just at moments pause and think, wow, John's just so beautiful. It's just so incredible. It's really, it's really going to light up my life as I look at this gospel and I realize all the truths that are here. I hope that you'll be touched and I hope it will cause you to want to wanna just appreciate the big picture and that you would say, oh, I love looking at this gospel of John. And so the way I want to do that is simply by asking five questions as we look at the importance and the significance of the gospel of John. Here's the first question. Number one, why are there four Gospels? You ever wondered that? You're like, well, man, why? I mean, we don't have four books of Romans, and we don't have four books of Revelation, and we don't have four books of anything, but we got four Gospels. Why in the world are there four Gospels? Well, I think you might already kind of have a hint at the answer. Each Gospel gives a little bit of a different perspective. I, I might try to equate it to where if you spent a little time watching college football yesterday, you might have noticed that your team looked differently throughout the four quarters of play. During the first quarter, you might have thought, man, we're going to win this game big time. We're going to crush them. And all of a sudden, everything switches in the second quarter, and you start to see some deficiencies in your team. In the third quarter, you see a certain play that gives you hope again. In the fourth quarter, every quarter of the game is different. Same game, but each quarter kind of looks at the game from a different viewpoint. It tells you something new about your team. 
Or maybe you're here and you're not a sports fan and you're a woman and you're like, man, why does Adam always give these sports analogies? I worked hard to think of a, maybe something that could work for you, so here it is. Are you ready? Maybe, maybe you've been to the spa and you notice that in the spa, there are four major things that could happen in a spa. You could get a mani, you could get a pedi, you could get a massage, or you could get a facial. And you need all four of those sometimes to get a real picture of what's going on in that spa. You might like the mani, but not the pedi. Or you might like the massage, but not the facial. And so all four, how am I doing, guys? You're like, nah, stick to the sports, man. Just stick to the sports. <laughs> all I'm trying to say is there's different perspectives of the four Gospels, and each one of them tells us something more about Christ. For example, the first Gospel, let's talk about the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as the coming Messiah. Some would say the coming King But the Old Testament prophets predicted and longed for the coming Messiah. They desperately wanted to see the anointed one who would bring redemption and deliverance. This is what you have in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, in the very first verse of Matthew, it announces the genealogy that the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes as a son of David. As a son of Abraham, Matthew provides a vital bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament so that the Jews that Matthew's writing to can see Jesus really is the Messiah. He is the King. And throughout carefully selected series of Old Testament quotations, Matthew documents Jesus Christ's claims to be the Messiah. And then you have the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark, we could say, presents Jesus as the ultimate servant. Mark is the shortest and the simplest of the four Gospels. It gives a a, a crisp, fast-moving account to the life of Christ. In fact, over 40 times, Mark uses the word immediately. It's kind of like he tells a story that happened, and he says, immediately, Jesus went from here to there. In fact, that's why I preached through Mark when I was a youth pastor, because I thought it would be helpful for the ADD kids in there to kind of keep up with Jesus, because every time you're just kind of moving around and moving real quick. And so Mark really narrates the story, kind of lets the story speak for itself. He tells the story of the servant who was constantly on the move, preaching, healing, teaching, and finally dying for sinful men. In fact, it's Mark 10, 45 that says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the ultimate servant. Next, we have the Gospel of Luke. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man. Some would prefer the term the Son of Man, which is certainly a biblical term. But here it's really pointing to the fact he's a perfect man. Luke Luke was a doctor. He was an educated physician. He wrote in great detail and used very specific uh, descriptions. For example, Mark told the story of how Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. It was Luke who said that it was his right hand. Matthew talks about the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke says that Jesus' sweat became like drops of blood. And so what I'm saying is Luke was very specific and to be expected, right? He was the only Greek author of the New Testament. He was largely appealing to a Gentile audience who would have appreciated his precise logic, his articulate language, and his chronological presentation of Jesus' life. Luke presented Jesus as the perfect man who came to seek and save the lost. Those who believe Jesus' claims are challenged to count the cost of discipleship. Luke's audience is to look to the Son of Man who would offer himself as the sacrifice. 
And then we have the Gospel of John. That's what we're looking at today, right? John presents Jesus as the Son of God. The Gospel of John is, a, in some ways, a gospel apart. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. How many of you guys have ever heard the synoptics or the synoptic gospels? It just means the word syn, S-Y-N, means together. The word optic means to see. And so synoptic means seen together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are seen together. There's a lot of overlap, a lot of similarity, but John is kind of set apart. It's not seen together with them. It's not a synoptic. It's its own gospel. It describes events in the life of Jesus from a different point of view. And while John might have drawn upon other events of the gospels, he gives some discourses and some new information not seen in the other gospels. And so John emphasizes that, yes, Jesus is fully man, but he's also fully God. Jesus is the Word who came to earth, who was made in the flesh, who was the eternal Son of God, who was born to die. Jesus was God's sacrifice for human sin. And so while John was certainly familiar again with the synoptics and may have even read them, for whatever reason, he believed it best to write his own account. And so that leads us to our second question. Number two, what is unique about John? What's so unique? What, what's so different? Why isn't it a synoptic? Well, first, let me talk to you about some differences and some similarities. Some differences and some similarities. As you read the synoptic Gospels, you see incredible similarities to each other. Although each had its own distinctive emphasis and themes, the synoptics had a whole lot more in common. They follow the same general outline of Christ's life and are similar in content and in perspective. They are, of course, uh, there are, of course, many themes that are in all four Gospels. For example, uh, all four Gospels contain the fact that Jesus taught in Galilee. All four Gospels teach about the feeding of the 5,000. All four Gospels talk about how Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in the triumphant entry. Uh, All four Gospels contain Jesus and the disciples experiencing the Last Supper together. All four Gospels talk about the fact that Jesus was betrayed and then arrested. They all talk about how Peter denied that he had been with Jesus. They all teach that Jesus was handed over to Pilate to be crucified. They all teach that Jesus died on the cross and was placed in the tomb. They all teach that that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And so they all teach overall the same big picture. But just a cursory reading of John's gospel reveals to you the fact that it's strikingly different than the other three. You ever read through the New Testament? You read Matthew, Mark, Luke. You say, oh yeah, I just read that over here. This says the same. I, yeah, am I rereading? Is this the same thing? And then all of a sudden you turn to John and you're like, oh, that's what I'm talking about. Finally, somebody's telling me something new. Finally, I've got some unique information here. And, and it's interesting, John leaves out on purpose certain things that the synoptics tell us, and then he adds certain things that the synoptics left out. So first, let's talk for just a moment, if we can, be in your outline what John left out. What did he leave out? Well, John's gospel omits a large amount of material found in the synoptic gospels, including some surprisingly important episodes. John's gospel leaves out the temptation of Jesus. 
He leaves out Jesus' transfiguration. He leaves out the institution in a formal sense of the Lord's Supper. He leaves out the record of Jesus' birth and his baptism and his ascension. John mentions no examples of Jesus casting out demons. There is no account of Jesus healing lepers. No list of the 12 apostles. Can you believe it? He even leaves out the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer. They are not found in this fourth gospel. There's no clear teaching on eschatology or end times, which means there's no Olivet Discourse. The agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is absent from this gospel. There is no teaching, not even once, on the kingdom of God in John's gospel. And so the question must be asked, well, why did John leave out so many things? Well, I think the best answer to that would be that it was God, the Holy Spirit, who chose not to inspire John to write them. Okay, let's not give John too much credit as if he's saying totally indiv- as an individual, I'm not going to include this, but I'm going to include this. Remember, all Scripture is inspired by God. God puts in the Bible exactly what he wants to put in the Bible. And if he wants Matthew, Mark, and Luke to write very similar things and John to do something totally different, it's ultimately God's choice, not John's. And so John, being led by the Holy Spirit, left out what he left out because that's what the Holy Spirit had him do. He wrote what he wrote. Because that's what the Holy Spirit had him do. And I I think it's fair to say that John wrote his gospel to supplement the synoptics, not to repeat them. And so while on one hand, John omitted much of what we learn in the synoptics, on the other hand, there's a ton of new material in John not included anywhere else. In fact, 90% of his gospel is new information. 90% of the Gospel of John, brand new information never seen before. And so let's talk about that if we can in your next blank there, what John included. What did John include here in his Gospel that we don't read in the Synoptics? Well, first of all, he includes in John 1, 1 through 18, the prologue describing Christ's preexistence. That's where we'll spend the next several weeks looking at John 1, 1 through 18. That's not in the Synoptics. John adds John 2, 1 through 11, the first miracle of turning the water into wine. The miracle of Cana is not mentioned in the synoptics. The rest of John 2 in John chapter 3 records special things about Jesus' earthly ministry in Judea and Samaria. John 3, 1 through 21, Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. That famous interchange between him and Nicodemus at night is not contained in the other Gospels. John 4, 5 through verse 42, records John's encounter with the woman at the well. The woman at the well in Samaria. Not recorded in the synoptics, it's here in John. John 5, 1 through 5, a special story of Jesus healing the lame man. John 6, 22 through 77, Jesus is teaching on how he is the bread of life. John 7, verse 27 through 38, Jesus' claim to be the living water. John 8, verse 24, Jesus taking, himself for the name, taking for himself the name of God. John 9, 1 through 41, Jesus healing a man that was born blind. John 10, 1 through 39, Jesus presenting himself as the good shepherd. John 11, 1 through 46, did you know this? The resurrection of Lazarus, not included anywhere else in the Bible except in the Gospel of John. How about John 13, 1 through 15? Jesus washing the disciples' feet. 
John chapters 13 through 16, the upper room discourse given with great clarity. John 17 includes what? The high priestly prayer. Only in John. John 21, 1 through 6, the miraculous catch of fish on the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection. And then you have John 21, 15 through 19, Jesus' recommissioning of Peter and prediction of Peter's martyrdom. It's also interesting to note that John contains more teaching on the Holy Spirit than all the other synoptic gospels combined. And so while John was most likely familiar with the synoptics, he saw fit not to let them set his agenda. I think it's safe to say that John wrote his gospel independent from the other gospels. And again, all that is decided by God. It's decided by God, the Holy Spirit, who inspires or breathes out the Word of God, which is good for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, complete for every good work. And so John's gospel is exactly what God wanted it to be. You don't ever have to look at John's gospel and think, oh, something may be wrong. He left something out. Maybe John's not really faithful to the doctrine of salvation. Not true. John doesn't mention the word repent in his whole gospel. Doesn't mean repentance is not key to salvation as it's mentioned in the other uh, gospels. The idea here is that John's gospel omits what God wants it to omit, and it includes what God wants it to include. Now, let me just say this. Your life is like John's gospel in the sense that God omits from your life certain things, certain gifts, certain opportunities that he may include in the life of another. It may be that this morning you wish God would add something to your life, but he chose on purpose, as you are a unique individual before God, to omit certain truths out of your life or opportunities to experience certain things. Whereas on the other hand, it may be that God has added certain things in your life, not included in other people. You know, it may be like, you know, John could have been like, I'm reading through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I want to include this. Lord, I want to include this. And he's like, no, we're not going to include that. I'm going to have you do this. And in the same way in our life, we need to develop that kind of humility and trust your life, like the gospel of John, is exactly what God wants it to be. Be encouraged today. You don't have to look into the lives of others and think, well, I wish that I had that opportunity or I had that ability. I wish I was married. I wish I had kids. I wish I had a girlfriend. I wish I could do that. Well, that's, that's not, that may not be you. That's not you. God's got for you what he's got for you. God has a beautiful life for you, and your life is to complement other lives of other Christians, even in this church, as we work together as the body. And so we could take a whole lot of lessons, even from John, just being that it's uniquely different, but it's uniquely good, and so are you. Now let's move on, if I can, to the third question, if I can. Uh, number three, who wrote the Gospel of John. Now, you're probably thinking, Adam, you've already told us John wrote John, so why do we even have to talk about this? Well, I'll, let me just give you your next blank some external evidence, all right? Uh, about 150 years ago, a lot of liberal, unbelieving uh, scholars began to doubt pretty much the authorship of every book of the Bible, and so some conservative theologians got together and said, look, we're going to do a better job defending the authorship of various books of the Bible. And so external evidence is all about what do others say about the Bible that would give it, give it a little bit of, of uh, you know, authority, if you will, or give it a little bit of, of uh, scholarly uh, proof that John really is the author. And so in the external evidence, you have the first person who really wrote that John uh, wrote this book would have been 
Irenaeus, the church father Irenaeus, who explicitly named John as the author in his work entitled Ancient Heresies, written in the last part of the second century, Irenaeus writes, quote, afterwards, meaning after the synoptics were written, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So you have Irenaeus, one of the best-known church fathers. Irenaeus is important because he was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of John. So you have John discipling Polycarp, Polycarp discipling Irenaeus, and Irenaeus saying, hey, look, John wrote the Gospel of John. Not only that, there was Clement of Alexandria who agreed. There was, uh, he wrote this, John, last of all, composed a spiritual gospel. Not only that, you have what's called the Muratorian Canon, which is the second century list of New Testament books and who wrote them. And in agreement is Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Dionysius of Alexandria, and Eusebius, who all named John as the author. Now, I don't know about you, but I put a whole lot more stock on what we call, your next blank, internal evidence as opposed to external evidence. I mean, you can find church fathers to say whatever you want them to say, almost, you know, to prove your point. So while I still think it's important that we look at the external evidence, I'm always moved a little bit more by the internal evidence, which is what does the Word of God itself say about the author of each book? And you'll find that none of the Gospels mention who the writer is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them name themselves as the author, as is a little bit more common with the epistles. So the 19th scholar, B.F. Westcott, summarized the internal evidence, that is what the Bible itself says about itself, in an argument that was logically made by examining all the New Testament clues for pointers to the original author of John. Let me just summarize it for you. Remember, big picture. Here's what he wrote. First, the author had to be a Jew. You say, well, why would he say that? Well, the, the Gospel of John obviously has an author who is familiar with contemporary Jewish opinions about a wide range of topics, including the Messiah, the importance of formal religious training, and the Jews' attitude toward the Samaritans. The author of John was familiar with Jewish customs, including ceremonial washings, wedding protocols, and burial traditions. Second argument, the author was a Palestinian Jew. Not only must he have been a Jew, but he would have been a Palestinian Jew, a Jew from Israel. He had detailed knowledge of local places available only to the one who actually lived in Palestine. He distinguished between the Bethany beyond the Jordan and the Bethany of the outskirts of Jerusalem. The author of John was very familiar with Jerusalem, describing at least three sites not mentioned in the synoptics, namely the Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Siloam, and the ravine in the Kidron Valley. Third, the author was an eyewitness. The author was an eyewitness. He gave specific details, even when they were not essential to the story, such as the name of Judas Iscariot's father, how long Lazarus had been in the tomb, and the precise time in which the uh, certain events uh, happened. The author of John alone records the loaves that the boy had at the feeding of the 5,000 were made out of barley. He alone records the fact that the perfume that was poured on Jesus' feet uh, was filled the house with fragrance, and he alone records that the triumphal entry uh, that people laid down, not just any branch, but palm branches. So he was an eyewitness. Fourth, the author was an apostle. And we know that from the fact that he was there in the upper room when Jesus went in with the 12 apostles the night before he was taken. And then fifth, he was the apostle John. He was the apostle John. It's pretty remarkable that while John doesn't mention himself 
in this gospel, he does refer to himself, we believe, as the disciple that Jesus loved. And so the first clue to this idea of that he had to have been the apostle John comes from the fact that all the apostles were there at the Last Supper, John 13, 23. It's, the field is uh, further narrowed down by John 21:2, which mentions the presence of Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and so that has to be one of those. It couldn't be Peter because Peter is referred to as dialoguing with the author of John in John 13:24 and in John 21:7. It couldn't have been uh, the other guys because they're mentioned by name. The only one that's not mentioned by name is Jesus, who in 1323 is referred to as reclining on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper, reveals that the beloved disciple was one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Well, again, I said it couldn't be Peter because they dialogue with Peter twice. Couldn't have been James, his older brother, because he died in Acts 12, 2, which would have been too early for him to have penned this letter. All that to say that by the process of elimination, the beloved disciple and author of John can only be the Apostle John. Now let me tell you a little bit about the person and the perspectives of John. I want you to get to know John as a person. He's not just some dude out there who wrote the gospel. He's an apostle of Christ. In fact, some would say he could even be the cousin of Jesus. Now, this is John the apostle, not John the Baptist. John the Baptist and, uh, and, and Jesus were cousins. But some would say that John the apostle and Jesus were also cousins. And that's a, uh, a, uh, a, 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 that's a long argument. I'm just going to skip for the sake of time. All right, But just know that it's possible that he could have been Jesus's cousin. And so as we get to know this study, John was one of the uh, one of the twelve. He was one of the three. He was there at the raising of Jairus's daughter, the Mount of Transfiguration, and the prayer of Gethsemane. But not only is he one of those inner three, John was the one disciple that was there at the foot of the cross. After everybody else scattered, it was John who was there willing to identify with his Lord. And so that's why I believe that John, in particular, was possibly Jesus' closest friend on earth. He was the one referred to as the one Jesus loved, but if you were on your deathbed, who would, who would you want to care for those who were closest to you? And what I'm getting at is that Jesus on the cross wanted somebody to care for his mother. And so while he's on the cross in John 19, 26, and 27, we read, when Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Now, who would you do that with except your best friend? If you're going to entrust your own mom to somebody, knowing that you're about to die, you would do that to your best friend. So I'm saying that John had a special relationship with Jesus. It was John who recognized Jesus first after the resurrection when Jesus was, uh, was there at the Sea of Galilee and he starts to tell them, uh, throw their net on the other side and they catch all that fish. It was the disciple that Jesus loved who said, it is the Lord. He knew that it was the Lord. And so John was the closest human being that ever lived that was uh, close to Christ. That ought to pique our interest into what he says. It ought to cause us to be like, man, I'm going to read this book carefully. This guy was there at the foot of the cross. And so while Jesus fed the 5,000, while there were over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection, while the 70 were sent out for a special work, while there were 12 appointed apostles, while there were 
three inner circle disciples, there's only one who was there at the cross. I don't know about you, but that just does something to my heart. That does something to say, man, I've got to keep up with John. I've got to follow John close. I want to see what he's got to say. And we could also say that the Apostle John is very familiar to us because he wrote much of the New Testament. He is the third in line of, of how much volume he wrote. Luke wrote the most. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, which is a long gospel, in the book of Acts. Then you have Paul, who wrote 13 epistles. Then you have, next in line, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then he wrote the book of what? Revelation. So John is the third most contributing author to the New Testament. So the Bible then is full of John's insights and his observations. There is much that we can learn about his personality and his character. Uh, they record, uh, history records that John played a major role in the early church. In fact, John outlived all the other disciples. That makes me like John. I want to be like John just for that reason. I want to outlive them all, right? He, the, the rest were martyred, but Jesus had already prophesied that this one would live longer, and that's why he records the book of Revelation. It's John that's also known, he's nicknamed as the apostle of what? Love. He's the apostle of love. More than any other New Testament writer, John teaches us about love. It's John who wrote the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It was John who wrote to us in John 14:15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's John who wrote John 15, 13. No greater love has a man than this, than he would offer his life for his friends. It's John who writes in 1 John 4, 7, and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You want to know about love? You can learn it from John. John understood the doctrine of love. He understood that God was love. He understood that the gospel was the greatest demonstration of love. He understood that we have to be loving one another in order to be a, a, a trademark sign to the world is our love for one another. With that being said, I think it should be duly noted that John is also characterized in the New Testament as a fiery preacher. He's not just like, oh, I'm the gospel of love. And they go around just saying, God is love. Everybody just love everybody. That's not really his demeanor. Do you remember? He is the son of Zebedee. He is nicknamed a son of thunder. It was in the New Testament when there was some messengers that went ahead and entered the village of Samaria, uh, in the, uh, in a village in the Samaritans, that, uh, that uh, they did not receive him. And who was it? It was James and John. When they saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You call that love? Well, I mean, apparently, like, love is a balance, right? But he was like, Jesus, they don't want you in their town. Check this out. We'll burn them up. And Jesus is like, no, man, you guys calm down. It's obvious that John's zeal and his ambition mirrored that of his elderly brother, James. Do you remember when they came to Jesus and asked him in Mark 10, 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit at your right hand, one on your left in your glory. That was James and John. That's pretty bold. They'd come to Jesus and say, hey, now their mother put them up to it, and according to one of the other synoptics, but they still did it. They still went through with it, and they said, hey, can we sit next to you? 
I appreciate the author of 12 Ordinary Men. You guys know that's Pastor MacArthur, but this is what he writes about John. Listen to this, quote, In his younger years, he was as much of a son of thunder as James. If you imagine that John was in the way he's often portrayed in medieval art, a meek, mild, pale-skinned, effeminate person lying around on Jesus' shoulder, looking up at him with a dove-stared eye, forget that caricature. He was rugged, hard-edged, just like the rest of the fishermen disciples. And again, he was every bit as intolerant, ambitious, zealous, and explosive as his elder brother. And John was a man's man. He was a tough guy. MacArthur goes on to write, quote, John was capable of behaving in the most sectarian, narrow-minded, unbending, reckless, and impetuous fashion. He was volatile. He was brash. He was aggressive. He was passionate, zealous, and personally ambitious, just like his brother James. They were cut from the same cloth. John was a man who needed to grow and change, just like you and I. He was a man not too unlike Peter, who had strong feelings and said what he said with great vigor. But as he got older, he aged well. He learned the balance of love and truth, of grace and truth. And as he got older, he's kind of thought of as, as that he mellowed out a little bit. And we think of him oftentimes in his later years as that tender-hearted, elderly apostle. As an elder statesman of the church near the end of the first century, he was universally beloved and respected for his devotion to Christ and his great love for the saints worldwide. Love never outdid John's passion for the truth, though. He continued to be passionate. With, you know, we didn't understand real love is a passion for God and a passion to obey his word. Love did not give John uh, you know, a right to be angry at others. Rather, it gave him a compassion and the balance that he needed. He did continue to the end of his life to have a deep and abiding love for God's truth, and he remained bold in proclaiming it to the very end. And so I appreciate that about John. I think that as we look at the gospel of John, it ought to stir our hearts as we think about his own character. Number four, what is the outline of the book? Just quickly, I know our time is out here, but we believe the book was written between 80 and 90 AD. History records that John could have written it from Ephesus while he served as a pastor there before he went to the Isle of Patmos. Here's a suggested outline from the book. I took this from Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson's Talk Through the Bible. Here's how they outlined it. A, the incarnation of the Son of God. That's what we'll be looking at for the next couple of weeks, the incarnation. Two, or B, the presentation of the Son of God, where Jesus is presented as being the Son of God, as the Messiah, the, as being fully divine. Three, or C, the opposition to the Son of God. We'll see all kind of oppositions coming from the Pharisees and coming from the Sadducees and different angles of people who are opposed to Jesus as the Son of God. D, the preparation of the disciples. That's where John spends more time than anybody else talking about what happened in the Passion Week and even what happened in the 12 hours before he died. The preparation of the disciples. And then E, the crucifixion and resurrection. And that's what we'll be looking at as an outline over this book. And then five, the next and last point for this morning, what is the purpose of John? What is the purpose of John? Well, turn with me, if you will, to the theme verse, which is John chapter 20, verse 31. 
the theme verse, I believe, is recorded here in verse 31. It says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, according to that verse, the theme verse, verse 31, I want to give you two purposes. The first would be this. There's an apologetic purpose. An apologetic purpose means a defense of the faith, defending why Jesus was the Son of God. And the way John gives us that purpose is by showing us eight signs, eight wonders, eight specific miracles that are mentioned throughout the book. The first one is turning the water into wine. There's something special about that miracle that shows us that Jesus is the Son of God. Number two, the healing of a royal official's son. There's something about that that shows us, again, that he is the Son of God. Number three, the healing of a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Again, these are eight signs, all pointing to the fact Jesus was the Son of God. Number four, the feeding of the 5,000. While all four Gospels record that particular event, John, again, is using it specifically to point to Jesus was the Son of God. Number five, the walking on the Sea of Galilee. Number six, healing a man born blind. Number seven, raising Lazarus from the dead. Number eight, providing a miraculous catch of fish. I know I'm going faster than you can write, but the references are all there. The fact that he healed the man born blind, that shows that he's God. The fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life, that shows that he's God. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and still doing miracles shows that he is the Son of God. Now, those are the eight signs. I've included a ninth one for you. Number nine, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Obviously, that goes without saying, but the fact that he was resurrected may be the greatest sign of all, showing that he's defeated death, he's defeated Satan, he's defeated your son by his own death and his resurrection from the dead. That's all apologetic, meaning all of those point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. I would argue with you from Scripture that because of these eight different signs and the ninth one being the resurrection, Jesus is who he said he was. But not only is he apologetic in his gospel, he's also evangelistic. That next blank there, he has an evangelistic purpose. There's an an evangelistic bent to this gospel. And I think John captures that best in his seven I am statements. Again, the references are listed for you there, but he says, I am the bread of life. And there's all kind of connections there with the manna from heaven and him being the bread of life. Number two, I am the light of the world. God is light. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. We looked at it in Psalm 27 last week. Well, guess what? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Number three, I am the door. Number four, I am the good shepherd. All of these pointing to the fact that Jesus is now evangelizing. He's saying, come to me. I'm bread. I'm light. I'm the door. I'm the shepherd. Number five, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Again, they're in the context of Lazarus being raised from the dead. We see Jesus in a whole new way. Number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. And in the seventh I am statement, I am the vine. Right? I am the vine. You are the branches. It all starts with us being tapped into, remaining in, being constantly tied to the vine. And then if you look at the very end of the book, the very end of the book, John chapter 21, he kind of, you, you saw the first verse. We just got in. That's all we're trying to do today. But in the last verse, check this out, John 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. 
were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, I acknowledge that's hyperbole. He's giving this huge picture to make a point. But at the same time, isn't that true? We can never exhaust the depth and the beauty of God that John, while he gives us a special insight into Jesus' life and ministry, he's just like, there's so much more I want to tell you. I want to tell you more about my Lord. The world cannot contain enough space for all the books that can be written about everything he saw, everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus did. He spent three years with him. I just love that about John. To me, it shows he's still growing. He's still interested in more. He still wants to communicate. He's not bored. He, He wants to know and to explain the bigness and the greatness of his Savior, Jesus. You know, all of this this morning, it makes me want to just say, please study the book of John with me. Let's do it together. I mean, I'm so excited about John. I don't want you to miss a single Sunday. All right, don't even go on vacation. All right, if you don't go, I won't go either. We'll stay here until we finish the book. Like, let's stay there. I mean, it could be while we're reading through the gospel of John and studying it here at this church that you say, you know what, that's when my son got saved. It could be that while we're in the Gospel of John, that you would say, that's when my spouse got saved. That's when my grandson got saved. That's when my granddaughter got saved. We kept looking at Jesus over and over and over and over and over again from John. It's such a glorious book where we learn to believe and we learn about the God of love and we learn about the Gospel. It's all here in the book of John. Are you ready? Are you excited to study this book together? All right, I, I, think, I thought I had some snoozers, but I hear some of you are alive back there. All right, so the take-home, all right? The take-home, real quick, what can you take from this introduction? Number one, do you have the tendency to get so lost in the trees that you forget about the beauty of the entire forest? That's what happens to expositors. That's what happens to inductive Bible students. We start arguing about, why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Huh? Huh? Why do you think he came at night? And we start talking about that to the extent we forget about the fact we could be born again. And all I'm saying is the tree and the beauty of the tree is just as important as the beauty of the forest. And so while we're in the Gospel of John, remember this introduction. Remember the big picture. Don't get lost and confused and frustrated by the trees. Keep taking a step back. Keep taking a step back and be like, oh, I love John. Such a great picture of the beauty of Christ. Number two. What makes John so unique that if we didn't have this gospel, we would miss something about Jesus? I think it would be a good practice for you as we study through John. You know, what what do I learn from the gospel of John? I would have missed if I'd have just read the synoptics. There's special stuff in here, in this book. And so every time you see something like that, you might just kind of mark it down. Only only got that from John. Only learned that from John. So glad I read John. It's right here in John. It'd be kind of fun to do that as you work through the book. And then number three... How will studying John give you more confidence in Jesus, the Son of God, and his ability to save sinners? I mean, my word, if this is the book that we pass out to people who don't know Christ, if this is the book that we, so many of us, while we're evangelizing, say, hey, you got to read the book of John. got to just read the gospel of John. It's all in John. That ought to give us great excitement and confidence that the truth of this gospel is the truth in your life. Don't get bored. Don't get tired. Don't say, oh, I'm tired of John. I think I'll tell him to read something else. No, come back to John. Read the gospel. Be changed and transformed because Jesus is 
the Son of God. And nobody says that better than this gospel of John. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at this gospel of John. I'm so excited. I'm so privileged. I'm so blessed to be able to be a pastor who could preach through this book, study through this book, along with our our small group leaders and our elders and our people. And God, I pray you just wake us up this morning. God, we needed maybe this introduction to John to see the forest, to have that 30,000 foot view of the beauty of the love of God seen in the person of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would be able to say about us what John wrote about himself, that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. So I pray, God, as we consider both his fire and his conviction, that we would also see his love and his proximity to the Savior. There would be so much, God, that we would learn from this gospel, that it would truly transform our lives from the inside out. God, there's people in this room who need to be saved There are Christians in this room who need a greater love for Christ. God, we don't want to stick stick around on the outer courts, Lord. We want to come into the Holy of Holies. Who better to bring us in than John? I pray, God, that we wouldn't be satisfied with just bearing 30-fold or 60-fold. We want to bring 100-fold into the house. God, I pray that we wouldn't be satisfied being one of the 12 or one of the three, that we would want to be that one at the foot of the cross as we look to Christ. We see Him in His glory as we're moved by His sacrifice. We would recognize the Lord even as John did after the resurrection. That's the Lord. I hear His voice. I see His figure. That's the Lord. God, would You do that in us? Would You change us? Make us more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. Use this study for Your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.